If you have a Bible with you this morning, or you can open that Bible app, but I want to invite you to join me in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Now, while you're opening your your Bible to... um, uh, the, the book of Daniel, I, I just want to ask you to imagine with me uh, for a, a moment a scenario, if you can, where the recent events in a particular country have left the future very unclear for its citizens. There are, there's this transition of power that's taken place where some are very excited about the change and others are very fearful. There is great unrest about the citizens, uh, among the citizens of the country, the economy is drastically shifting. The values that the people grew up living with were, are disappearing more and more year after year. And many of the religious leaders have caved to the pressure and no longer hold to biblical truth. Does that scenario sound anything like what you could possibly identify with today? Because that is the scenario of Daniel. That's the scenario that we step into in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, a scenario where the people of God are living in exile. You think about Daniel and the people of God. They, they've been uh, taken out of their homeland. They've been living in Babylon for the last 70 years. They're, they're living in a very hostile country that is doing horrific things. And regardless of how you feel about the election that took place in our country just a few months ago or how uh, frustrated you might feel about the former president or the current president, I can promise you this. It is nothing compared to what Daniel went through for seven decades, 70 years. I I say that because as Christians, we can act as if the sky is falling when particular events take place in our lives. But we need to be reminded that God has been sovereign throughout all of history, throughout all of the generations. God is with us no matter what takes place, and so no matter how you might be interpreting what's going on in our world today, I think we need to be reminded that God is on the throne, that he will protect, he will provide, he will strengthen and encourage his own. Now, as we come to this passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning, Daniel chapter 9, I want to just acknowledge up front that in the 19 years that I have been preaching, this is one of the most difficult passages that I've ever preached from. This is a challenging passage to deal with, and maybe you've been looking forward to this study of this particular passage, and you've thought, you know what, I just can't wait until Pastor Jason clears up all of this for me, tells me what this passage is all about. Well, let me just say to you today that if that is your expectation, you're going to be let down. I realize as well that there may be some of you who have never studied this passage before, and you might be thinking, you know, I don't understand what the big deal is all about. But there have been people who have spent their, the majority of their adult lives just focusing in on this passage, and yet they still are unsure about the contents. The only agreed upon um, idea about this passage is that it is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the entire Bible. That's the only thing that there is agreement on. You might remember last week that uh, we were reading about how Daniel was praying to God and uh, that, that prayer of repentance for the people of God. And he was begging God for relief from the exile that he was in. 
Now, Daniel and the people of God had been in exile for nearly 70 years, and he had been reading the book of Jeremiah. He said, our time in exile is almost up, and that would then lead him to seek the Lord in prayer. While he's seeking the Lord, Daniel has some uncertainty about what the future is going to look like, and so God sends one of his angels named Gabriel to help clarify things for Daniel which is what we are going to be reading here this morning. But let me just warn you that the clarification might not seem all that clear. In fact, it is probably going to feel pretty confusing. So before we read this, I want to just say that we could be very confused about the details here, but I want us to walk away just understanding what the main thing is all about. And the main thing is this, that life is hard, God is good, And one day, he is going to come back and make all things new again. That's at the heart of what this passage is all about. You might disagree with me about the details, and that's okay. In fact, I might change my mind about the details of this by the end of the day. But the main theme here is what I'm holding on to with my very life. One day, Jesus is coming back, and he is going to take those who belong with him to live with him forever. So your Bible's open to Daniel chapter 9. The the context here, Daniel is praying to the Lord, asking him uh, what he should do in this period of time as he waits to be released from exile. And here's what we read beginning in verse 20. He says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. And at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, before we get to the vision here, I I, want to stop for just a second because I think that what we just read here is so, so beautiful. Daniel is reminding us that God hears our prayers no matter what else is taking place around us. What's so incredible about this is that Daniel is praying and God reminds him that I heard you. I always hear you. In fact, there's never been a moment when God has plugged his ears and said, you know what, I'm just going to refuse to listen to you. I think that all of us have been in a situation before where maybe you've called someone who is very, very, very busy. They actually pick up the phone and you say, thanks so much for answering. I know you have a lot going on. You're a very, very busy person. And I so appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. God is the most busy being in the entire universe. And yet he never puts you to voicemail. He never puts you off. He he always is there. He's there listening to anything you uh, say um, when you call out to him. And what's beautiful about these opening verses is that God not only heard Daniel's prayer, but he quickly sent Gabriel to assure him regarding 
these coming plans. And so God hears Daniel and he sends the angel Gabriel. God hears our prayers and he doesn't just uh, put it on a sticky note in a folder that he's going to get to later. No, he hears you right in that moment and he comes calling. Years ago, I was talking to an older pastor about uh, just advice for ministry. And one of the things that he told me was this. He said, you know, if I'm ever in a meeting and uh, somebody calls my phone, I'm not going to answer it unless it's my wife. I mean, if my wife calls, I'm picking up the phone and I'm at least going to say to her, are you okay? I'm in a meeting right now with somebody. Can I get back to you? He said, the reason why I do that is because she's the most important person in my life. And so she is always going to get the priority. Uh, To the best of my ability, I will always answer her calls. Friends, here's what I want you to know this morning. God always answers you when you call. God loves you. God wants to hear from you. And I love what it says in verse 21. Gabriel's sitting there. Daniel starts to pray. And it says that he came to me in swift flight. That it's like God says, hey, you know, Gabriel, I need you to go there right now. Get there immediately. Gabriel says, well, what am I supposed to tell him? Tell him that he's greatly loved. What a beautiful picture this is. Now, there's a detail here that I just don't want us to miss. And the detail here is more exciting to me than anything else in this entire passage. And, and it says in verse 21, While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. You read that and you think, well, um, what, what's so impressive about that? But I want you to get this. I mean, Daniel, he is an 80-year-old man, and and he is saying that he's praying at the time of the evening sacrifice when he's been in exile in Jerusalem, uh, from Jerusalem, where the temple is. He's been living in Babylon for the last seven decades. Now, I don't want you to miss this. We have a picture, an artist rendition that we're going to put up on the screen of Jerusalem being destroyed, the people being taken off into exile. And uh, you, you have to understand something here, that, that there hasn't been an evening sacrifice in 70 years. The temple has been destroyed. Worship is done with. And yet Daniel is praying at that time. Why? Well, because you can take the man of God out of Jerusalem, but you can't take Jerusalem out of the man of God. Wherever he is, he is still on the clock of what God is doing. We have another picture. This, is, this one is of a map. Um, Jerusalem is that red dot that is on the left-hand side of the map. Um, Babylon is uh, the red dot on the right-hand side of the map. There are 1,600 miles that separate the two of them. And Daniel is in a different country, he is in a different culture, and yet he is still operating his life by what God has said to do. Even though Daniel is in exile, he is operating as if he is still at home. And friends, it is a good word, a powerful word for us today. Because here is Daniel, he's far away from home. There is no temple around, it has been burned to the ground, and yet every day he is still praying. In fact, some of you remember back to Daniel chapter 6 where we're told that Daniel prayed three times a day, right? 
that there were specific times during the day when he prayed. And this prayer, this evening, sac- it, 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 during the evening sacrifice, uh, it was a specific time. It was three o'clock in the afternoon when he was praying, which is very important because Daniel, his prayer life revolves around this. He pushes everything else in his life to the side so that he can pray three times during the day and he can be intentional about seeking the Lord. Now, if, you, if you're like me, you might be wondering, well, why is it so important to get this detail? Why is it that Daniel wrote this down? I mean, what, what's the big deal about this time of prayer? Well, I think about what Daniel is telling us here, what, what Gabriel tells Daniel, and, and that he says, you know what, God has a plan for uh, what's going to come about, and he's uh, he's going to make everything right in the world again. He's going to. It's all going to focus around this person called the Messiah. That this anointed one is going to come in the future, and he is going to atone for sin. Everything that has been broken in this world is going to be made right once again. And what's so fascinating to me is this little detail in, that the gospel writers would give us uh, along the way. And they, they include, uh, uh, do, you, do you know what time of day Jesus Christ was crying out from the cross, it is finished? What time of day did that happen? It was 3 o'clock p.m., 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifice. And Daniel's praying in, at the time of the evening sacrifice. Don't miss the time because one day there is going to be another sacrifice and it's going to be given in Jerusalem. And it's not just any lamb that's going to be offered. This is the lamb of God. And if we could get our minds around that and, and think about that, I, I think these next few verses are going to find their proper place for us. Verse 23, the angel Gabriel says to Daniel, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I have come to tell you, tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. I absolutely love this because Daniel is an 80-year-old man. He's living in exile. He comes to God and he says, How long, O Lord? And the first thing that God wants to make sure that he knows is, Daniel, I love you. I haven't stopped loving you. In fact, I I have this crazy love for you. Friends, the greatest assurance that you can receive in turbulent times is the reminder that you are greatly loved by God. I, I, I mean, you just think about this once. Here is Daniel. He's living in these very difficult times. He's calling out to God. And many of us might kind of picture God and he sends this angel to Daniel in order to say, hey, Daniel, why don't you stop your whining? Daniel, stop complaining. Hey, Daniel, get over yourself. But Gabriel doesn't say anything like that. Instead, he says, listen, Daniel, God sent me really quickly to you because he wanted you to know without a shadow of a doubt that you are greatly, greatly loved by him. And some of us need to hear that and be reminded of that today. Because maybe you're here today and you think that somehow God, God's love for you is contingent on your performance before him. Friend, that is not it. 
Because if God is waiting around for you to act the way that you should act in order for him to love you, I mean, you'd be in huge trouble. I'm talking, we'd we'd all be in major, major trouble if we had to act in a certain way to get the approval of God. You are not a big disappointment to God. You are not a great annoyance. You are not a great frustration. You are greatly loved. You are greatly treasured. You are greatly pursued after by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who loves you so very much. You might say, well, I know that he loved Daniel, but how do I really know that he loves me? I, you know, I'm so glad that you, you're thinking that way or asking that question Because John 3.16 would say it this way, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God gave his only Son for you. Now, a little over a month ago now, we celebrated Christmas. And a lot of times at Christmas time, we buy presents for different people in our lives. When you sit down and you think about uh, buying something for someone in your life, I mean, a lot of times you'll assign an amount of money that you'll spend on each person. And if a particular person is really, really important to you, you might spend a lot of money on them. But if it's maybe that neighbor, they they live far down the block, you don't talk to them much, you don't see them a whole lot. But um, maybe you have just a, a little tin of popcorn at home just in case they show up. You know, I'm not going to go out of my way to go give them this present, but in case they come by and they want to give me something, I'll have something to give them in return. But what we give can say a lot about how much we value a person, right? So what did God give you? Well, he gave you his son. He gave you the life of his only son. I know that you may feel not loved all that much. You might feel unappreciated. You might feel not that people are not pursuing after you in life. But the, the, the almighty God, he gave the life of his son for you. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 says it this way. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And what about 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, which says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You are loved by God. And I know that you might not believe it because you've been listening to someone else's voice in your ear for a long time, telling you that you don't deserve God's love, telling you that you've sinned way too much, that you've made way too many mistakes in life. Well, the problem with that voice is that he's kind of close to the truth, but he just doesn't understand the grace of our God. That voice comes from Revelation chapter 12 and verses 10 and 11 where we're told that the voice of our accuser stands before God, accusing us by name every day and every night. He says things like, you know what? Jason shouldn't be loved by you. You know what? Do you remember what he did in the past? Do you know what he's done in the present? Do you know what he's going to do in the future? Jason does not deserve your love. And I would say that's absolutely right. 
And yet God has chosen to put his love on me. He loves me in spite of my sin. He loves me in spite of my dysfunction. And he's chosen to send his son to the cross in my place. And so if you're here this morning and you are struggling with whether or not God loves you, I I just want to tell you not to listen to the voice of the enemy saying that you are unloved by God. Because that's a lie. The truth is that you are greatly loved. You're greatly loved by God. And so God hears our prayers, but he also answers our prayers. And I want us to see how God answers Daniel's prayer. In fact, he answers it in a very unique way. And after reading this, you might be even tempted to say, well, Daniel, did I miss something? Uh, did, Did you write all the information down here? Because this still feels very confusing. But uh, let's go ahead and read this vision of what Daniel tells, uh, what Gabriel tells Daniel in order to encourage him here. Beginning in verse 24, it says this. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness and uh, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall be, shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, after reading that, you you probably have a lot of questions, and I'm not going to be able to answer all of those questions. But but what I want us to do is to kind of focus in here on the bigger uh, ideas that are present. Because the fact is that when it comes to the details of this passage that I've read, um, I've read six different commentators on this, and and they all have a little bit of a different spin or a little bit of a different view of things. And everyone agrees, though, on this one thing, that this is pointing us to Jesus Christ, that he is sovereign over all. And even when the future seems very unclear, that we can trust in his plans as we move forward into the future. Now, As we interpret these verses, we need to remember that this specific explanation is a direct response to Daniel's prayer about the Jewish exile. Daniel is praying to God and he is saying, God, I am begging you for relief from these 70 years of exile. You promised that in 70 years we're going to be set free. And so he is praying and Gabriel shows up and starts talking to him about these 70 weeks. Now, why is he talking about weeks instead of years here? What's going on? 
Well, in explaining this, we always have to come back and remember the context. And the context is Gabriel is talking specifically to Daniel about the Jewish people who are living in exile there in Babylon. And why were they living there in the first place? Well, they were living there in the first place because they had chosen not to follow or obey the ways of God. And this wasn't the first time that this happened in history either. If you go back to Adam and Eve, they're, they're, they're living in the Garden of Eden, this perfect paradise where the presence of God dwelled. But they break God's rules and they, they, then they, they try to live in their own strength, in their own wisdom, in their own power. And so they get kicked out of the garden. They get exiled out of the presence of God. You read through the first few books of the Bible about how God chose a people for his own possession. They're moving along. At one point, they get to Egypt. Egypt is not their home. In fact, God tells them that he has a specific place in mind for them. It's called the promised land. God rescues them out of Egypt. On the way to the promised land, he establishes something called the tabernacle which is this place where they they could walk into the presence of God under the authority of God, talking about the commandments of God. But if they broke one of those, if they broke those commandments, they were going to be exiled out of God's presence. Well, the Israelites finally make it into the promised land. They establish themselves in this place that is flowing with milk and honey, where God's presence is supposed to be with God's people under God's authority until they break the commandments that he has given. And at that point, what happens? At that point, they get exiled out of the land and the temple gets destroyed. And the temple is this place that represents God's people, God's place, God's commandments, God's presence. Now, this pattern continues to happen throughout history. As Christians, this world is not our home, but rather the home that we are looking forward to is heaven. And and heaven is this place where God's people will come together in God's presence under God's rule. And so while the Israelites really did experience the exile from their homeland for 70 years, I think that this is just a picture of what's actually going to happen to all of us. That, that, that this is what it means, and this is what I mean by that, that, that we live in this world, and as we live in this world, we experience life apart from God's place in a culture that wants nothing to do with following God's rules. And while we as Christians do have access to God's presence, we don't fully experience it the way that it should be experienced. I think that we can all agree that we are not home yet. That we are exiles living in a strange land. And while we can get a taste of some of the great blessings of God in this life, we were actually built for something else. We were built for something far greater than what this world has to offer. And so while these verses in Daniel chapter 9 are speaking directly to what Daniel and the people of Israel are going through, I think that in some ways we can relate as well. I mean... Why doesn't this country feel more like the place where God dwells? Well, because we're not home yet. Verse 24 talks about these 70 weeks, but I I think that these 70 weeks represent a bigger picture where God is going to restore his people to be with him. Now, I want to just point out something here, because if, if you were to read this in Hebrew, the original language that this was written in, 
you would know that it doesn't say 70 weeks, but it, rather it says 77s. That's what it says, 77s. And so it's like Gabriel is saying to Daniel, hey, listen, you have been waiting for something to happen for 70 years, but I'm just telling you that it's actually going to be 77s. And you say, well, what does that mean? He's saying that there's going to be a period of time that is going to involve 70 units of these sevens, whatever that means. And some people think it means literal weeks. Other people think it means literal years. Other people think that it's more symbolic. Now, for me, um, at this point, I would probably lean for it being more symbolic. That's just my opinion, though, and, and I don't want to get bogged down in the details here. Rather, what I want us to see is that verse 24 talks about these six things that are going to be accomplished by the end of this period of time. So six things that Gabriel tells Daniel are going to happen according to verse 24. First... He's, he, he's going to finish the transgression. And, and I believe that what this means is that God has a plan where he is sending Israel into exile. They're being disciplined. But when that time of discipline is up, he's going to let them go. Second thing he says is that he is going to put an end to sin. That something is going to happen in the days after this that is going to put an end to sin. Then it says that he is going to atone for iniquity, which means that he is going to cover it up, that he is going to bring forgiveness, he is going to bring redemption, and he's going to redeem the sins that have already been committed. Fourthly, it says that he is going to bring an everlasting righteousness, that people are going to live rightly forever, that they are going to do the right thing. Fifth, It says that he is going to seal both vision and profit. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means is that he's talking here to Daniel and he's he's saying that what has been said to Daniel is confirmed and sealed, that it actually happened. But then finally it says, and to anoint a most holy place, or it also could mean a most holy thing or a most holy one. So there is the establishment of what I would call the final temple, where God's people come to one place and meet with the presence of God once again. Now, in these last several verses here, um, there are three periods of time that are talked about. And in the first period, it, it talks about these seven sevens, where God will begin to restore the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. So Daniel's sitting here in exile in Babylon. He, he wants to get back to Jerusalem. And Gabriel tells him that the, uh, about these seven sevens. Now, uh, we, we, we don't know for sure if he's talking about weeks or years or whatever. But we do know that it wasn't long after this vision that there was a guy by the name of uh, King Cyrus from Persia who tells the people of God that they're allowed to go back to Jerusalem and bring uh, and to begin to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, and it's going to take a few decades for them in order to get that job done. Verse 25 says it this way. Now therefore, uh, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. He, he says, you know what? 
I'm going to set someone apart to do something for a period of time in order to get the people back into Jerusalem. Personally, I think he's referring to King Cyrus here. But it's not just about these seven sevens, because after that, there are going to be 62 sevens. And during this period of time, the people of God will be established, but intensely opposed. And verse 25 says this, Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with square and moat, but in a troubled time. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, I think that it means that, there, that the city is going to be reestablished, the walls are going to be rebuilt, the kingdom is going to be there. there are going to, there's going to be this moat that goes around the city, but there's still going to be these people who are jumping over, causing all of these issues. It's going to be a troubled time. And even though they're home, there's still conflict going on. Now, you think about the Jewish nation and all the conflict that they've experienced over the years following this. In fact, they rebuilt the temple under Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. But 483 years after this vision of Daniel, it's around 30 BC, around the time when Jesus would begin his public ministry. And there has been conflict the entire time with the Persians, with the Greeks, with the Romans. You say, well, why do you bring up this 483 years after the time of Daniel's vision? Well, if you take 7 times 7, and then you take 62 times 7, and you add them together, you get 483 And listen, I could be wrong about this, but I think that this is pointing forward to the time of Jesus, this coming Messiah. In fact, there is this third period of time that Gabriel talks about, and I think that this is where the hope lies. This third period of time just has to do with 1-7, where the anointed one will be cut off, but in this climactic battle, a dwelling place for God's people will be secured. Here's what we read, verse 26. It says, and after 62 weeks, which if you're following the timeline here, this is 30 AD, the time of Jesus, uh, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, anytime that you read about the anointed one in the scriptures, it is often pointing forward to the Messiah, to the Christ. And I could be wrong about this, but I think it's pointing to Jesus here. Verse 26 uh, continues on and says this, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. After the time of Jesus, was the temple destroyed? Yes, it was in 70 AD. It was burned, leveled to the ground again. Verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What does that mean? Well, as lovingly as I can say this, I have no idea about what these details are saying here. But it's okay not to have all the answers. 
And I want you to know that today. It's okay not to have all the answers on everything. I, I, I don't have the mind of God, and you don't either, and that's a very good thing. But, but I think that what's going on here is that this is pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, and bring about an everlasting righteousness that we read about in verse 24. Now, that's not going to stop all of the chaos and confusion. That's not going to stop all the suffering and the pain in this world that's brought about by those who oppose God. In fact, Christians have and will continue to suffer greatly in this world. But because Jesus died on the cross in our place, we have a hope that is beyond what this world has to offer, beyond the grave. In fact, Paul would say it this way, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, that Christ has set forth, was set forth as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That he came to reverse the curse, to set the prisoners free, to offer redemption and new life and peace with God for all of eternity, for all who would trust in him. Friends, there might be a lot of uncertainties about Daniel chapter 9, but one thing is sure, that in Jesus, God has made a way for us to dwell with him forever. He, he's broken down the dividing wall so that we could be in his presence, and that's the best news ever. In the end, the only thing that's really going to matter is this. Are you with him or are you against him? He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's sovereign over all. He does as he pleases and no one is going to stop him. The most important thing that I can tell you today is not to stand here and try to explain all the events and the details of the future, but to point you to the Savior. Friends, the biggest decision of your life is this. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? The fact is that you are greatly loved. God sent his son to go to the cross in your place. And today, you can be forgiven. You can be set free. Uh, today, your future can be secure if you trust in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. Let's pray.